I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me as I talk with today's most important influencers, guides, and change makers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaway from their personal journeys and their greatest wisdom. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is Self Helpful. This is our peak wellness show where we give specific focus to our health and wellness, which is the foundation for all we do. And in this episode, we're talking specifically in regards to glucose. You don't care uh, a whole lot about glucose in and of itself. What you care about is your body's reaction to your food and lifestyle choices and resulting energy levels and your clarity and, and all that good stuff. And that is the point. Your body reacts to what you eat, how you live, but it's incredibly complex to understand those correlations unless you're wearing maybe a continual glucose monitor, CGM. And this is just new technology. If you are aware of them, it's probably in association with someone who has diabetes and that's not the case anymore. And you're about to get schooled in that. My expert on the topic uh, and this tech is Kara Collier. Kara is a registered dietitian, uh, nutritionist, a licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and certified nutrition support clinician specializing in glucose control and metabolism. And she's the co-founder and VP of health at NutriSense. So NutriSense, that's the CGM we're talking about. It's a, uh, this is a, one of America's fastest growing health tech startups. I have been wearing a CGM, a continual glucose monitor from NutriSense. And I'll tell you, this is not an ad. No money has exchanged between us. Not that I would, you know, be against that, Kara, but, uh, my motive here is just helping myself and everyone listening with new opportunities to monitor and understand and increase our health and wellness. Uh, as you hear us talk, you can check it out. NutriSense, it's N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E, NutriSense.io. All right, there's my intro, Kara. How awesome. Yeah. Sounds I, great. Yeah. <laughs> give it some justice there. I, as I said, man, I'm not a clinician here. I am aware of continual glucose monitors, you know, diabetics wearing that. But then I had been reading about, okay, this is what people are doing now for, now from an athletic standpoint, which is my arena, it was for, you know, for performance. But now it's, I mean, you guys are working to get it going beyond that. I'm a fan of wearable devices overall. And this is, uh, I mean, this is latest tech. So explain that because you guys talk about it it's right on the front of the website. This is uh, your focus is really on non-diabetics, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so tell us, yeah, give us the, the impetus of why as a non-diabetic people want this. Yeah, absolutely. So just to go back, as you mentioned, the CGMs, they're typically used historically for diabetics. So a medical device that you're working with your endocrinologist, adjust your insulin dosing, very like clinical medical setting. And as a registered dietitian earlier in my career, that is the use case of which I worked with patients, you know, type one diabetics specifically. Um, and as I 
kind of exited clinical healthcare space um, for, you know, many reasons. Healthcare is very complicated and doesn't always work quite as well as we want it to. Um, I started to think about how to solve some of the core problems I was seeing in the hospitals. You know, you see people come into the ICUs with complications of lifestyle-related chronic conditions. So when thinking about how to address some of those root causes, what is really tied to a lot of that is metabolic health at the center. Um, So I think about metabolic health as sort of like our cellular engine that drives our bodies to be able to perform and behave in an optimal or not so optimal way. Look, is it fair just on your story right there that you were in healthcare, which as I mean, no bones about it, healthcare is about fixing the problem that is already manifested. You are now broken. And what I'm going to paraphrase, you tell me if I'm if I'm right, is that you went from that to saying, how can we use some of this stuff and actually prevent this stuff from happening and help people before they break? Yeah. Yep, exactly. So I spent about three and a half, four years at the beginning of my career working in hospitals, um, mostly ICUs. So started in healthcare traditional setting and then realized that just like you said, it's more sick care, it's reactive, it's for acute issues. But these chronic illnesses, chronic diseases take decades to develop. So if we can intervene earlier with the right information, and then actually in a way that's motivating people to really truly change their behaviors, then that's where we can actually move the dial. And I realized that was going to be pretty impossible to do within the existing system. So that's when eventually um, came to founding NutriSense to solve that problem. Um, so it's how do we get the right information to people way, way earlier so that they can focus more preventatively and actually kind of address some of these issues before we've you know gotten to the point that we're really truly have destruction within our body. You know, we yeah. completely decompensating to where we have now crossed the threshold into disease, which it's still valuable and important at that stage. But ideally, um, you know, we're getting that information way sooner. Totally. Well, so let me ask you. So obviously, if you got diabetes, you've got, you know, t- whether type one, type two and you're over. Well, no, type one, type two, we know we can do a lot to, to help with. But let's Absolutely. even go back for that. Right now we have I think the last stat I saw was 37 million Americans or something have I think that they're saying have diabetes. Now that doesn't say how many of them have pre-diabetes. Maybe you know that number. I didn't look. It's yeah. So the 37 million. Um, so about I think it's like 12 percent of the population have type two. When it's more about 38, probably closer to 40 percent of the population have pre-diabetes or diabetes. So okay, so that's there. So we're looking at prevention of not getting diabetes, and I would say even even you know, not getting pre-diabetes, staying away from that. I do want to, and I want to come back there. I do want to selfishly, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been watching or you know, working on myself for, for so long and feel like I'm doing pretty well. Like I'm not at risk for, I'm not, I don't need to make a lot of effort to prevent pre-diabetes. I shouldn't be even close there. And yet I'm still over here on a side of caring about my personal performance, whether that's in a, an athletic endeavor, or it's just sitting here and I want to be creative to write my next book. I want to be creative to write a great show. I want critical thinking skills. I do not want brain fog. I do not want to sit down here and feel like, oh my gosh, man, I'm not, I'm not all here. So even just on that side, you're saying, okay, this is, cause that's, that's what's new to me here with the CGM. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing, you know, I wear, a, I wear a Garmin watch and it's not, as you know, it's not super clinical, like an aura ring or whatever, but it does give me the stats and I can see what my body battery looks like from, you know, the day before or the, the night sleep, what my sleep patterns are Same. and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I love that, but that does not show me, uh, CGM what's happening as my, especially in relation. Well, no, I was gonna say relation to my diet, but as you guys say, it's diet and lifestyle because I saw when I was wearing it. I had some big spikes, like, especially when I go out and do a big workout and it's not about food, it's about what I'm doing and I'd see huge shifts in it. So again, just back to a daily, even if I'm not worried about pre-diabetes, uh, there's a lot to be gained from just knowing where I'm at and monitoring that. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about why should anybody care about their metabolic health um, and not just diabetics, we can think about the long-term view, so disease prevention. And again, it's not just diabetes that we know glucose levels are correlated with. It's also cardiovascular disease. It's also you know dementia and neurological conditions, chronic kidney disease. 
all of these most common conditions are tied to glucose and metabolic health, and then also our immune system function, hormone balances, general longevity. But then we can also look at that short-term view. Um, our glucose levels are also our direct reflection of our energy levels. So yeah. it's how your energy feels throughout the day. And it also directly affects our day-to-day -day brain function, as you mentioned. So mental clarity, cognitive function, concentration, memory, and then also mental health. So a lot of people with those, if you have big swings in your glucose values, which you can certainly have without having diabetes, yeah. a lot of that triggers anxiety for people. Um, so kind of that mental um, health clarity. And then things like cravings, hunger, um, ability to kind of just have a good overall quality of life, you know, improve sleep quality. All these things can also be tied to glucose values. Because it's really our body's, you know, primary energy source. So if that's out of balance, um, then you're going to see that ripple effect both in your day to day and then those long term consequences as well. So, gosh, you just list, you just rattled off a whole bunch of different pathologies. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I don't, you know, I know what I'm eating. I don't feel like I'm super at risk on a diabetic standpoint. But you just rattled off, and now I'm sitting here wondering, okay, what what could I be at high risk of metabolically that I'm not taking care of aside from diabetes? List those again. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just diabetes, as I mentioned. Um, you know, that's the first thing that most people think yeah. of, of course. But we also know, so if you think about what is called metabolic syndrome, this is essentially a criteria where um, if any metrics of metabolic health, which includes glucose, but also kind of your waist to hip ratio, so where your body mm -hmm. composition looks, um, your HDL and your triglycerides and your blood pressure, those metrics together kind of give an overall viewpoint of what your metabolic engine looks like. And any deviation in those, and we see a significant increase for not just diabetes, but cardiovascular disease. So that includes anything like heart attacks, stroke, hypertension, or high blood pressure. And then we see an increased risk, significant increased risk for neurological conditions. Most commonly, you think of dementia or Alzheimer's. And then we also see a really significant increase for any sort of kidney impairment. So chronic kidney conditions, chronic kidney disease. Um, and in addition to that, we also know that the one metric that is most out of all the lab values that is most highly correlated with longevity in general. So general, you know, life expectancy is your average glucose levels. So overall, this is really impacting your body's ability to just kind of, you know, continue in its optimal function for as long as possible. Okay. That's interesting. I've coming from an athletic, you know, arena, I do know of, you know, people and they're performing well and whatnot, and then they'll find out that their, their cholesterol is really high. And you think, gosh, that doesn't seem like it would make sense. Or you hear the stuff every once in a while, somebody had a heart attack, you know, some famous runner or whatever it is and has a heart attack. And then on a dementia side, I mean, I'm going to hope that the health and wellness athletic pursuit is going to help with that. But plenty of older athletes that get dementia just at the same you know, standpoint as other people. I, I wonder if you're really overdoing it, overtaxing it, maybe if you're even at risk of doing that earlier. So these are things you're saying are all aspects of your metabolic health. Yeah, absolutely. And there is this um, paradox with performance that we see where, um, and we can, you know, talk about, of course, what all affects your glucose levels. But as you alluded to a little bit ago, it's not just nutrition, it's also your fitness level, your exercise habits. So for the most part, you know, we see this U curve where increasing exercise and increasing your level of fitness and physical performance improves aspects of health, especially glucose levels. But then sometimes when you get into that hyper um, competitive, you know, professional athletes, performance goals can sometimes be at odds with health. And you may have experienced this, but um, sometimes what we need to do to perform at the very, very, very best level isn't always um, what is best for our health overall. So sometimes there gets to be a little bit of a trade-off there at that high levels of performance. 
Um, you know, if you think about you're, you're putting a lot of stress on your body sometimes in those really high performance, which is why a lot of athletes also have higher injury risk. Um, but then you're also, especially endurance athletes, we see a lot of people who have done just years and years of goos and, you know, Gatorade and whatever quick, you know, refined sugar they need to keep those energy levels up. And then maybe they aren't performing as much. And then they're still seeing those glucose levels kind of rise back up after years of really, um, pounding the system with lots and lots of yeah. easily available energy. So there's a little bit of a paradox there. Uh, no, totally. And I come from that world. Matter of fact, I was just watching the the Tour of Spain, the Vuelta, uh, which is happening right now. So from cycling, it's like the Tour de France, it's over in Spain, and we've got an American who's leading it right now. So I'm actually watching the thing. And yeah, to do that, to do the miles that they do 21 days in a row, that's, that's completely stupid. I mean, they we even know better than that on running. You know, We don't have no event where you're doing a, a, a marathon, not an actual official event a marathon a day for 21 days. It's dumb. That's what they do in cycling. And yeah, those guys are killing themselves. And I don't think I went to that quite extent, but okay. So on that though, I mean, we're looking at, we're looking again for me, I want to be performing well out on, you know, at an, at an event, but bigger than that, I want to sit here and just have my energy levels. I don't want to crash after lunch. I don't want to crash midday. I don't want uh, brain fog. And we've all had that. You have the cycles in life and something happened and you got a kid in the ER overnight or whatever. The next day you're compromised or you're at a family event or whatever mm -hmm. it is and you're eating whatever's going on and you suffer from that, you know, in a cycle or in a moment, that's okay. But overall, and that's what we're seeing, people are long-term doing these things. And then at some point for most people, it is going to manifest somewhere else. And like you said, we've got, again, whatever the percentage is, if, if you take diabetes and pre-diabetes, do you know the stat? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like half the population now. Yeah, it's about 40%, but that's the most recent stat, which they take, you know, like several years yeah. to update those. So I would imagine it's closer to 50% at this at this point. So here we are. And I'm going to pick on America. I know people are, are listening to this who are not in America, but I'm going to pick on America that we are eating ourselves into diabetes. And, and yeah, we want to think that we just eat whatever your body does what it does to process it. And our body's awesome at survival. It's amazing. But at some point, it's going to manifest. What are the, I mean, we all hear about sugar. I don't, I hope nobody's, especially listening to this show. I mean, we have a curated demographic of people who would even listen to a show like this. But even here with the average person knowing, yeah, too much sugar is not good. Give us some insight that you know that even amongst an, an, an aspiring health oriented crowd, where we are missing it. We think we're doing okay, but you're going to come along and go, yeah, you're like everybody else and you're missing it in what areas specifically? Let's go dietary first. Yeah. Yeah. So starting with diet, which is the first place, you know, really to start, but it's certainly not the only area. Mm -hmm. We all know that sugar, yeah, is not ideal. Um, but I think there is a mismatch between what people think is everything in moderation or balance versus maybe what's actually optimal for their bodies. Yeah. And this is where there's a lot of variability. The interesting thing about these monitors is you can put them on a hundred people who are all non-diabetic, you know, not in the pre-diabetic range, and you're going to see completely wildly different glucose values on the CGM. Um, what we can capture from those traditional lab markers that you might normally be looking at, the two being your fasted glucose and your hemoglobin A1C, which is like your average glucose, they're only catching you know, a little snapshot of what's happening. It's telling you what happened in that fasted state on that particular day, and then your average glucose levels over the last three months. And then what we tend to see is people's responses to foods can be all over the place. Um, so one thing to keep in mind is how much variability there is between people. And you can't know that information unless you see the data. So one individual who is maybe the same age, same gender, same body composition as another person might have double the response to bananas as that other person and then half the response uh, to potatoes as that other person. So even like whole food carbohydrate sources, we have these very different responses. You know, research is seeming to believe that this is due to our different microbiome makeups, you know, different genetic tendencies, lifestyle, you know, epigenetic factors, but we have these really, really unique responses to food. So 
that's something to keep in mind is just that. Can I highlight that? Yeah. I told you, so these folks listen to the the show here. They know Dr. Randy James, my my buddy who was just in here talking about his experience with his own CGM. So he could theoretically be standing there. Both of us were were similar age, similar lifestyles, whatever. He could eat an apple and doesn't phase him a whole lot. And so I think, oh gosh, I should, so an apple's okay. And of course, what we don't know is I eat it and it just spikes to oblivion, just like you said, based on whatever. And, and at this point, we don't need to go down that road. It just is. So I'm, I'm there. I've got to be the only way I could know that. And again, this isn't just a sales pitch for CGMs, but it is saying what the opportunity is. The only way, no different than sleep. We don't really know. We might think we got a good night's sleep. We, you know, whatever. We don't know until we wear an aura ring or whatever it is and find out, oh, that's what's really happening. So here, that's what the CGM technology offers is to see that, hey, it's not a black and white, eat this, eat that. This is good. This is bad necessarily. It depends on you. The only way to know is here. And you can know and see, oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought for so long that this was a healthy product and it's jacking my, what would be that? What would be a common thing that most people would tend to think might be okay. And you're saying, gosh, for a lot, a lot of people have an issue with X and spiking their glucose that they wouldn't have normally thought. Yeah. So there's the variability that's just, you know, unpredictable between people. But then there are a lot of things that I think surprise people, which are usually. um... Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to think about 20,000 breaths, according to the EPA the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. like dubbed like healthy, low carb alternatives that sometimes have these like fake fibers or fake ingredients that usually still results in a glucose spike. Um, So examples might be some of the like, you know, sugar gummies that are like low carb sugar gummies or low carb chocolates. Um, A lot of those actually spike people's glucose values just, just as high as the alternative. So that's something to keep in mind is some of these like packaged foods that are a little bit of a marketing game, just proceed with caution, try to veer towards whole foods as much as possible. 
And then the other thing is the level of processing. So just using, let's say, oats as an example, you will see a significant de- significant change in your glucose response depending on if you ate instant oats versus rolled oats versus steel-cut oats. Um, me personally, you know, I've tried all three of those steel cut oats. My glucose moves maybe 10 to 20 points. We're jumping all the way to the instant oat example, which is the most processed form of oats. It's about like 80 to 90 points that my glucose will change. And so when we say, you know, try oatmeal or eat oatmeal for breakfast, that doesn't, those two foods really aren't even the same thing anymore. Instant oats versus steel cut oats. I wouldn't even consider them, you know, the same ingredient. So really thinking about the level of processing, and you can even see this, you know, of course, an obvious example too might be like a whole fruit versus like juicing that fruit. Right. Um, so thinking about like what, how much it's been processed. And another um, nutrition tip that we see almost works for almost everybody is making sure to have what we call no naked carbs. So eating carbohydrates by themselves, especially on an empty stomach. So if it's like first thing in the morning, you're going to see a much more dramatic glucose response than if you had some protein first and then the carbohydrates. This kind of helps to slow down digestion, um, blunt some of that glucose response. And it also leads usually to people feeling a little bit more satiated, which then tends to lead to less overeating and kind of like, you know, snacking, going back for more food. So really always pairing those carbohydrates with some protein as well is, is an easy way to kind of see some improvements. Well, I, and I want to clarify that because I saw your, I guess it was on Instagram and you were talking about, you talked about specifically that, and it wasn't even the pairing. You didn't even say have carbohydrates. You know, if you're going to in, in the morning per se with a protein, you said, and actually eat the protein first, like sequentially eat yeah. that first. So if you're going to have, so one, if, if I got this right, You'd say, okay, Kevin, so you're best off not to get up in the morning and just have a bowl of fruit or an apple. Correct, or whatever. Yeah. Do that. Now, if you, but you're not saying don't have, if you want to just have you know, an egg first and then eat that. And even that sequence will help. Yep, that's- absolutely. And it works for pretty much everybody. So it's one of those things that's just kind of like a consistent truth across the board of the data. And so when you say naked car. So you would say the same thing if I'm going to have a, just to take the stare, you know, the old standby steak and potato dinner or whatever, literally start off and eat some of that steak, let it go in, let it go down, then go over and have your potato. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we would never know this. That's why you're on the show. All right, so, <laughs> I, well, I want to ask then even because you talk about whole foods. So hopefully people heard that was a real quick blip there on processed foods. I'm really hoping that most people in the audience know if it's processed, if it's in the middle of the grocery aisle and it has a shelf life, it's processed. It's not a whole food. Your good foods are out on the edges of the grocery, your whole foods. But even there, I want to know about, because if I hear that and go, oh, whole foods, well, what's out there on the edge? Well, potatoes. Um, I guess rice isn't. Rice is still on the inside. Well, But I want to know about that. Potatoes, rice, whole grain bread. Tell me about those three. Yeah. So it it really depends on your carbohydrate tolerance. So when thinking about whether I'm going to be able to tolerate like a whole potato with my steak or whether I need half a potato or whether I really shouldn't eat any potatoes at all, it's going to depend on a few different factors. One is kind of the state of your health at baseline. So as we mentioned, you know, maybe 50% of the population has prediabetes or diabetes. It's also estimated that close to 90% of the population would not be considered metabolically optimal. So those five criteria we talked about earlier, about 90% of the population has at least one of those in an abnormal range. So most people in America are in a state of sort of insulin resistance. And the more that you are potentially insulin resistant, the less your body is going to be able to tolerate some of those carbohydrates. So you really kind of have to think about the state of your health and then also your kind of overall activity level. So somebody who is, you know, an endurance athlete and they're running, even if it's just more like recreational, let's say you're running a couple miles every day compared to somebody who's completely sedentary, that person who is active has more room to be able to eat some of those kind of quicker energy sources, which is what I would consider some of those easier to digest carbohydrates like white rice or white potatoes. Um, So you really have to kind of consider your lifestyle and your health status. 
but they can work for a lot of people. Um, I'm certainly not in the camp that everybody needs to be keto or low carbohydrate. You know, you really need to adjust to what your body needs at that moment. But for a lot of people, you know, those foods can work perfectly fine, especially if it's a whole potato that you've roasted and you're eating some protein first with it um, and you're doing kind of a portion size that's working for your body. It can be completely okay. Is there anything like that even, well, I'll say for myself, potatoes, I don't generally do. They're nightshades. So along with, you know, peppers and eggplant and what's the other one? There's another main tomatoes, tomatoes. Thank you. Those don't, my body does not like those much. So I don't do those. Now I will do sweet potatoes, which is the goofiest thing that it's a different animal, but it actually is. And my body does a lot better with that. Are there, is that a good, is that a relevant substitute a lot that's going to do from a glucose standpoint that does tend to serve the body better? Yeah. So with the nightshades and then also, you know, different categories of food, sometimes um, dairy, especially gluten for many people, these can be inflammatory for some subset of the population. So it's just very important to know that about you. And if you personally are somebody who, you know, maybe you, you experience inflammation from gluten. When you eat it, then you're probably going to have an even more pronounced effect in your your glucose values when you eat that, because not only are you having it break down into glucose right away and have your um, values skyrocket, but you're also having that inflammatory response, which can then also drive up glucose levels. Whereas somebody who maybe tolerates it perfectly fine might not see as dramatic of a glucose response. So kind of as an example related to this, we had um, a customer, you know, example that was having a glucose response to macadamia nuts, which is a very glucose friendly nut. You know, it's like the keto nut. Um, And then after he did some food sensitivity testing, it was macadamia nuts were like his greatest intolerance. So he was kind of having this inflammatory response to Mm -hmm. the food. So you can sometimes see that show up as well. That's so funny because I I did a sensitivities test. It's probably been a couple of years now. And one of the top ones, like eggs was up there. Okay, that Mm -hmm. makes sense. We got a lot of people who have issues to eggs and, uh, you know, nightshades. I, I struggle with a lot of the corn not even corn, but corn derivatives, the xanthan gum and the, what is it? Maltodextrin, I think is often corn bother me even more, but then way high up on the list is green beans. I thought I I just was just ignorant. I thought who the heck is intolerant (laughs) to green beans, man? These come out of the garden. What's wrong with that? But I, legumes uh, in general, uh, which if you're trying to do, I can, I, in the past been vegan and then vegetarian and man, that's a and legumes. That's a mainstay. Yeah. My body, for whatever reason, it likes to get inflamed when I have those. So, um, you do this. I want everybody to look on, if you go to Instagram and it's at Nutrisense IO, I believe is your guys' Instagram. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, I was looking at it today. There's a lot of people on there going, Hey, let's see what happens. You know, they're, so they're wearing the CGM, the, the, the monitor. Well, let's, let's happen. Let's see what happens when I eat a Chipotle burrito. Let's see what happens when I eat X. And that's the point of going along and doing this. Now I didn't care. So I'm wearing the thing and I just, I just wore it. I didn't pay attention to anything. I just thought, let me just live my life and see what happens. And uh, now, of course, you got to track your food well in doing that. The other thing, and I'm not, we don't have to leave food and go into lifestyle right now, but I was real aware of how high I spiked during my exercises. Uh, and I want to tell you, and so you can add in how this makes sense. I habitually don't, a lot of times I don't eat breakfast. I've gone through a long time of, you know, the uh, intermittent fasting and whatnot. I'm generally not hungry in the morning. And so I just wouldn't. And if I'm going to go out, especially if I'm going to run even more so than ride, or if I'm just going to do a really hard effort, I just won't eat that much. And I've gotten myself to a place where I can do that. My body doesn't need, doesn't need it for the performance. And yet when I go out there, I'm seeing that man, my, my glucose spikes through the roof. So what's happening? Yeah. And so it's important always to differentiate that, that glucose response that you might be having with exercise versus maybe food. Um, so with exercise, we might see one of two glucose responses depending on the intensity of the exercise. So the more intense it is, the more likely we are going to see a glucose rise during that exercise. And you really can think about this as like supply and demand of energy. So if we're doing something intense, so maybe you're going on a hard ride, maybe you're doing sprints, maybe you're trying to 
PR at the gym, weightlifting, then your body needs more energy in that moment than probably what is available just like in circulation. So typically what happens is, you know, your hormones send out different signals to release glucose from different stored energy sources, or the liver can create more glucose to supply that um, energy need. And so typically this response is very normal and healthy, especially if it's paired with what we would expect um, the exertion level to be for that exercise. Sometimes if somebody is not very fit and maybe they're getting into exercise for the first time, um, even kind of a mild fast paced walk might rise, uh, you know, bring their glucose up because their body's not really used to that. But we wouldn't expect that, you know, kind of for the average person. So it is normal for glucose to rise during that. And the body is using that energy right away for fuel. So it goes through different mechanisms um, than something if like, you know, you ate a bag of Skittles and some Gatorade and sat on the couch and had a similar glucose rise. Mm-hmm. Your body is going through a completely different process in that situation. So as long as it's, you know, 140 is what we're looking for for food spikes for a non-diabetic as kind of that upper threshold. But 180 is what we really want to stay under when we're doing kind of that intense exercise. Because above 180, we start to kind of see a lot of inflammation, oxidative stress, damage to that actual blood vessel. And typically, we don't see that unless somebody is really overdoing it. We'll see it with like CrossFit uh competitions, typically, you know, something like that. And usually we can mitigate that by eating a little bit more beforehand, really focusing on hydration and, you know, a couple other strategies. Okay. So now let's come off of the intense exercise athletic aspect and just say the average person in average, even the average, you know, somewhat health-minded person is going along. And so we talked about some of the culprits with diet. What about with lifestyle. They're not going out doing some massive intense, you know, exercise, but they're give us the lifestyle risks for this. Yeah. So when it comes to lifestyle, um, there's really three categories that are going to be the most impactful on your glucose levels. The first is going to be your fitness level, your physical activity habits, The second is going to be your sleep, so quality and quantity. And then the third is going to be stress, both um, psychological stressors, but also physical stressors. So when it comes to exercise, this might be one of the most powerful tools we have in our toolbox to have good metabolic health and good glucose control. And everyone wants to know what exercise is best. Um, the cheesy answer, but the true answer is whatever one you can do consistently. So if somebody absolutely hates to do a certain type of exercise and you're trying to get them to do that, and then they just don't stick to it, then that is not the best exercise for them. So consistency is really what wins here. There is a lot of interesting research that even um, skipping you know, a few days of exercise So I think there was a recent study that came out where somebody, where the group of um, participants took one week off after already being regular exercisers, and they had a statistically significant decrease in their insulin sensitivity, which then led to a statistically significant increase in glucose values just in their day-to-day. So consistency is really what we're going for. But both aerobic exercise and strength training are going to be really beneficial Um, our skeletal muscle are actually our largest sink for glucose. So 80% of glucose that is circulating in our body will end up getting picked up um, by our skeletal muscle. And if there's no room in there or um, it's already all full of stored glucose, then it's probably going to get turned into fat instead. So the more muscle mass we have is almost like an insurance policy for our glucose values. But then that aerobic exercise also really helps um, increase our mitochondrial function, which is processing some of this glucose values, using some of that energy. Uh, So both are very, very beneficial, but we want to be consistent. And then we also don't want to be that person that works out for an hour a day and then is completely sedentary the remaining 23 hours of the day. So most important things are to also move throughout the day and to try to be consistent as possible. Okay. I want to speak to a couple of things that you said there. That is one. That's one that I got hit with, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Maybe it's been longer than that, kind of with the, uh, you know, the stand up desk 
fad that kind of went, I say fad. I mean, I, I, I have the, them, I use them some, but it was kind of like sit, sitting is the new smoking, you know, it's really hurting us. And I was thinking, I think it was along that time when somebody pointed out, so Kevin, it's great that you go out and do your hour or more a day, whatever big workout in the morning. But just as you said, if you are sedentary the rest of the day, you are suffering still from that aspect. And it changed my perspective. And so now it is trying to get up, trying to get, you know, moving and people, you know, we talk about that. You park somewhere, park further out or take the stairs or do whatever. For me though, I don't even do that. I don't have to leave whether I'm in my home office or here. And so it's, gosh, maybe every time I go to the bathroom, get a drink, whatever, drop down and do some push-ups, do some pull-ups, do some dips, do some whatever. And it really did. It changed my perspective because I thought if I get that big chunk done, I'm good for the rest of the day. And I saw that in your guys, in your literature, your Instagram or something like that, the benefit of trying to do a little bit. Would you even, would you go so far even to say better to do a little bit throughout the day than to even do the one big chunk if you got to take one or the other? Yeah, I would. Hmm. And there's research to back that up as well, which is quite interesting. Um, so, you know, you can take the same amount of exercise yeah. and participants broke it up throughout the day in five to 10 minute increments versus like an hour workout. And the spacing throughout the day was more beneficial overall for multiple metrics of health. Really interesting. Let me ask you then also, you mentioned skeletal muscle and protein. I'm not sure exactly. So folks listening, when this is going to drop, when this show will drop in relation to, we've got a series coming up with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Uh, so she has a new book coming out. I don't know if it has yet uh, called Forever Strong. And her big focus is muscle and the benefits to longevity. And of course, then how do you feed that muscle protein? I saw, I think it was on your Instagram, uh, one of your posts, uh, Kara, and it was also the recommendation of a gram of protein per uh, per pound of body weight that you have, or your, I think Gabrielle said, and maybe you did too, or your target body weight. Obviously, if you're 500 pounds and you should be, you know, 190, yeah. then it'd be 190 grams, not the actual weight that you are. But whatever that target healthy weight is, a gram of protein, which as you know, that is... There's so few people, me included at this point. I just talked to Gabrielle last week. So I'm on a new path of going, holy smokes, how do I get that much protein in? Because I'm not even close. Yeah, I, I love her work and we work with her as well. Um, and it's a huge point of emphasis for our clients and customers also. Vast majority of people we work with are under eating protein and they don't realize it. So especially women of what I have found tend to just misjudge how much protein is in a source. So we often see a lot of people for breakfast that eat one egg which is seven grams of protein. That's not making a very big dent if your goal is, you know, 160 grams in the day or 130 grams in the day. Um, and let's say at lunch, you know, you include half a cup of beans, which might be useful, but it is still not enough to get you there. That's probably only about 10 grams of protein. Um, so really when you start to track it, so trying to get people to truly track everything they're eating for at least a week, you don't have to track forever. Um, you know, I know tracking is cumbersome, but it can help bring awareness to probably some habits and, you know, quantities and things that you aren't realizing. And what we see is that when people increase their protein, not only are they more likely to be able to build muscle mass and keep it on, but again, we see that people are satiated for longer, so they tend to eat less, so they tend to have the weight loss that they're looking for and the body composition changes that they're looking for, and they have more even and stable glucose levels. So it tends to be something that is really just beneficial for all aspects of health and very little you know, downside except for the fact that you might have to change the way that you think about your meals. When you talk about in this aspect of metabolic health, would you look at exercise? You just mentioned obviously cardio stuff or, you know, resistance training, building muscle. Would you, if you had to err on one side, which would it be? I am always a huge proponent of resistance training, building skeletal muscle, especially, you know, I, I work with a lot of women and I think again, um, it's really yeah underemphasized for women. Um, I think women are afraid to go do weight training. They're afraid to do resistance training. And so I'm really trying to break that barrier. There are a lot of great resources out there for people to kind of just like follow along a workout in an app, follow along something, get a personal trainer. 
But I think having a strong base of that lean body mass is going to protect you in so many instances down the road, but also immediately. Um, but we know, you know, it's one of the most predictive aspects of longevity and health span is having that good amount of lean body mass. I also see that the women who have the least issues during menopause and with hormonal changes are the women who have the most skeletal muscle and have been doing resistance training. That's purely anecdotal, but it seems to be a very strong trend. So um, I think resistance training is, is really important to not be missing. Okay. I went down because that's my propensity to go down the fitness and the diet and stuff. I do want to come back to what you said. You list, listed out three things, fitness level, uh, sleep quality, sleep. and stress. So when you're looking at metabolic health, when you're looking, again, if you've got a, a, if you're wearing a CGM, so it's monitoring you, what are, so how, tell us in relation to sleep, what you're seeing. So these, you know, whether it's bad sleep habits or just having poor sleep because of X, Y, Z is affecting it. We're going to see, what are we going to see? Spikes, dips, what's going to happen? Yeah. So if you have, and actually sleep and glucose have a bi-directional relationship. So Um, if you are having higher glucose values going into that night of sleep, it's going to affect your ability to have high quality sleep and impair your ability to get into those deep sleep stages specifically. And then also if you have a poor night of sleep, it's going to affect your glucose levels the next day. So typically what we see in that case, and this can be both poor quality. So maybe you are in bed for nine hours, but you're kind of tossing and turning, or you're not getting in a lot of, you know, deep sleep, all of those different stages, or just not enough sleep. Both of those, we're going to see glucose levels rise the next day. So typically those morning fasted glucose levels will be higher. And then your responses to meals will also be higher. So this is really interesting. I've seen this in my data. I've seen it in many people's data is that let's say you have your, your go-to breakfast meal or whatever your first meal of the day is. And normally you respond very well to it, but you had a poor night of sleep last night, whatever happened, you know, something interrupted your ability to get to that restful sleep. And you have close to a two times the amount of the glucose response to that same exact meal the next day. And so what research shows actually is that glucose levels could be up to 40% higher and hit kind of those insulin resistant values when we get poor night of sleep. So what's really important to know is if you are chronically not sleeping well, this could literally be the one and only habit that actually puts you into prediabetes, diabetes. Your diet could be great. You know, your, everything else could be great. You could be an athlete, but if you're not looking at sleep and paying attention to sleep, that alone can kind of drive you in that direction. Okay. Well, sleep is something that I've been more educated on that side than the glucose side. And yeah, for me, stress, and it could be relationship stress, you know, you're in arguments with your spouse or kids, you know, whatever that take you in and give you poor sleep because your mind is, you know, stuck on that worry, that anxiety, whatever. Now I do see the most acute changes for me with food. And yeah, if I have, I mean, if I could have my pick every night, I would have a couple glasses of wine and a big bowl of ice cream and it destroys my sleep. Popcorn destroys my sleep. I mean, just literally wrecks it. I might as well not even go to sleep with us. It's kind of gotten worse as I've gotten older. So if I want good sleep, want good recovery, I know what to do and I know what's going to happen if I decide to imbibe and it wrecks my sleep. And yeah, it's like this vicious cycle that you get up and you're all, like you're saying, you get up, you're already in trouble and it's just going to build upon itself and it calls us back into, I mean, and that is a big part, not a big part. It's a gigantic part of just the accountability of a wearable device. You know what? I'm going to hold on yeah. to that just for a second. We're going to, we're going to, maybe we'll end on that of the accountability benefit of it. Um, I do want to look, we talked about sleep, sleep quality. So now talk about stress just in and of itself. So somebody's out there, they're eating clean. They think they are, um, they are, let's say they are sleeping well, but you know, stress, you mentioned uh, earlier, just anxiety in general, how that is affecting our literal glucose levels and then of course, yeah. thereof energy. 
Yeah. For many of our healthy um, customers, many of, you know, people who don't have diabetes, they're eating while exercising, stress is where they see their highest glucose responses. So we can see this both in acutely stressful moments and then also the effect of chronic stress. So acute stress, you know, think you're in a traffic jam and you're getting really mad or you're in an argument with someone or you got a stressful email that kind of sends your your adrenaline rushing that surge of adrenaline and cortisol literally releases a flood of glucose in our body. Um, and so this is a, you know, evolutionary response where typically when we are in an acutely stressful moment, we need energy. And so our body kind of releases its stores. The liver is starting to create glucose as much as possible. Um, but typically in those acutely stressful moments, we should see that glucose spike and we should see it come back down. And so with those, of course, if you're having this two or three times a day, uh, we certainly want to implement some stress management techniques in order to kind of alleviate some of that acutely stressful response. But where we really see people get into trouble is with the chronic stress. So instead of maybe a sharp glucose spike as you have that surge of hormones, you're seeing kind of a chronic low hum of glucose rising. So we'll see this especially um, when you're in a fasted state. So while you're sleeping early in the morning before you've eaten anything, many people who are under a lot of chronic stress will have glucose levels that are, you know, in the 90s, 100s, 110s, which would be considered pretty high in that fasted state. And a lot of this is because we're kind of overstimulating cortisol at a baseline. So it's that same response as that acutely stressful moment, but it's just kind of happening at a lower level, but constantly. And that can really add up, of course, if our glucose levels are never really coming fully down, if we're always kind of stimulating that stress response, then, um, you know, eventually it's, it's really going to wear down on the system. We can also see this with physical stressors. So things like um, illness or injury or anything that's kind of putting a physical stress on the body, we see a similar response. Okay. Well, again, talking about overlapping shows, I mean, cause to some degree we're talking about, I mean, cause I, my first thought was, okay, we should meditate. We should do some of these things to help ourselves. That's great. But ultimately the question is what is causing us that stress, that long-term, that abiding anxiety, which comes really into our own emotional intelligence. We did a series not long ago. And again, I'm not exactly sure when this is going to drop. We've got another series coming up on emotional power with a Harvard uh, psychiatrist, and it's understanding why. I mean, that's what I've had to do, Gary, is wonder why am I, things aren't bad. I'm not in a war zone. My life is pretty good, but I run on anxiety, even just excited about things that are fun, but I kind of keep this level. And and I don't come down and I'm not considering the long-term effects. And you're saying, yeah, this is going, this is another thing that my, well, the, the glucose that can, that can harm my metabolic health that the glucose monitor can help me have. I paid attention, like on your guys' Instagram account, people doing, uh, you know, Hey, here's what happens when I eat a Chipotle burger or burger, uh, burrito or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when I eat an apple. This is what happens there. So what I hear you saying is, Hey, this is what happens when I have, poor sleep. Let's check it out. This is what happens when I am letting my anxiety go awry because of this relational strife, or I'm worried about money or whatever it may be. I'm scared of my neighbor, whatever it is that you can watch it and monitor it and understand what's happening and know that that is going to, I mean, at the end of the day, we're saying, if you are out of balance, it's going to manifest somewhere, whether it's critical thinking skills or just hope and joy in life, or diabetes or heart disease. It's, 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 it's not benign. Something's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's going to surface somewhere and most likely multiple places if you keep, you know, keep going long enough. And what is interesting and maybe tying to that kind of accountability piece that first is awareness, you know, sometimes your baseline levels of stress are so high and your anxiety is kind of so high that it feels normal, you know, normal 
as normal. And for many people, they don't realize that this is actually a problem. Yeah. It's a lot harder to recognize than something like I slept like crap last night. If you know, if you really slept super poorly, you usually know. Or if you're not exercising at all, you you know. Um, if you're overweight, you know. But for many people, it's easy to deny or ignore maybe some of these stress responses. And so seeing the data first helps bring awareness to that, um, especially those kind of acutely stressful glucose spikes. Um, many people are like, whoa, I had no idea that my body was having such a response in yeah. these moments. Um, so first, it's, it's really about building that awareness, becoming um, motivated that this might actually be something that's really affecting me. And then the data helps you kind of adjust things. Like you said, for some people, meditation is the thing that does it. You know, for some people, meditation, they hate it. it they're never going to stick to it. It's not for them, but maybe breathing exercises works much better mm. or journaling or going on a walk. Um, so there are different techniques. And part of what can be helpful with continuous data, so not just the CGM, but something like, you know, even a fitness tracker or an aura ring, um, all of these continuous data streams is that you can iterate really quickly. You know, you can try something, see how your body responds to it, reflect on if it feels like it's something that you think you could be consistent with, something that works in your routine, and then find something that does work much quicker than maybe the older, you know, old fashioned, like tried and true, try this for a while, maybe it's working, maybe it's not try that, you know, it just takes a lot longer to find the habits that are working for you. I do want to talk about literally the the continual glucose monitor on the aspect of accountability. I'm pretty enamored Kara. I have been for years now with the benefits of just wearing something, even if it's just for yourself, that the moment that you put on a Fitbit or a, an aura ring or a Garmin watch or a, or, or a CGM, that all of a sudden it's that immediate, oh, what, I'm, I'm being tracked here. That alone, I love. I figure if everybody just did that, knowing that they were tracking things, we would by proxy make 5%, 10% better health decisions just for that. So I love it for that. Even more so if somebody's going to see it, which now with you guys, I mean, because there are, there's other competitors out there where you can go get a continual glucose monitor. You guys then have coaching along with that. So I, again, before we get into that, even just that, if I know that, oh my God, I'm using this thing, somebody's watching and I'm about to eat a donut and I got to fess up to this, or they're going to at least, even if I don't, they're going to see the, the, the response. I love the accountability of that. I'm an, I'm an advocate of wearable devices just for that. Even if you don't show with anybody or if you decide, hey, me and my spouse, significant other, my buddy, we're going to share this stuff just to kind of keep us going is worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And going back to kind of pre-CGM um, days, when mm -hmm. working with patients and counseling them, one of the most frustrating things is that you can educate people and you can tell them, um, you know, what might be best for them. You can work together, but if they don't do it, then you don't see any results. Yeah. And so the switch between working with people with data, without data to then working with people with data is night and day. The amount of accountability that people experience, the increase in just motivation when you actually see that this is working. So when somebody tells you something, you know, your physician tells you, you need to go do X, Y, Z, or you read something on a blog, there's a different level of motivation that comes from those type of behaviors when you see that it actually works for you. So any sort of tracker that gives you that real feedback, but then also holds you accountable. You know, we are an instant gratification species. Mm -hmm. We love that immediate feedback. That's why social media is so addicting for people. Um, and so our health habits typically don't have a very great immediate gratification. Sometimes it's even negative, right? So going to the gym for the first time in a while and you're sore, it's not immediate gratification. Eating a piece of cake uh, at night actually just tastes good. It feels good. There's no negative consequence right away. So when we can really bridge that gap, that time gap with data, 
So now I eat that piece of cake. I see this huge glucose response. I know my coach is going to message me about it. And I know now it affected my sleep. And now my glucose values are higher the next day too. Suddenly it doesn't taste so good. Mm -hmm. So anything that really can yeah drive those sticky habits um, is also something I'm pretty obsessed with as well. So we see it's just night and day with having that data and actually being able to do the things you want to do. Well, and I do want to say that if somebody hears that and that sounds harsh too, I mean, you're still the boss. If you want to have a piece of cake, have a piece yeah. of cake, watch your glucose and tell your coach, yeah, so I did it. Do you sue me? I mean, this isn't a hand slap thing. It's just the, hey, here's an offering to help understand that. Uh, and even that to be more intentional with what you do, because there is, I mean, this last weekend we had, you know, kind of family celebration. I bought ice cream and I knew that we're going to watch the movie. I'm eating ice cream. My sleep will suffer for it. I chose that. And then I can choose also to try to recover better the next day and not do it the next night and whatever and deal with that and go to intentionality and at least knowing what's on there. Okay. Now with you guys, I mean, you do, you provide a continual glucose monitor that folks, you put it on your arm. It is, it's a little needle. You can go again to the, to the, um, Instagram account, NutriSense. IO there. And you see a lot of people, you guys have ads of putting it on because even that can bother some people. Oh gosh, it's a little needle. It's the most insignificant little needle. And yeah, you hardly feel it if at all uh, going in and then it just stays there. You got a little patch that goes over it and it is monitoring you. You got a, an app on your phone that you can then watch it. If you're like me, I'm not a tech person. I'm not, I'm kind of paying attention to it, but I really don't even want to want to, I want to come and say, okay, care team, whatever, let me know what's going on. And you provide coaching with that. And my understanding is that is kind of what makes you, or one of the things at least that makes NutriSense makes you guys uh, unique. Again, not the point isn't to pitch NutriSense, it's pitch the technology and the opportunity, but you do provide coaching with it. I'm not aware that that's a part of other competitors. Yeah, we are. We're the only company that's combining the human element with it. Um, and of course, I have a bias coming into this that I was a dietitian and I really believe in that human component. But I think when you combine data plus humans, that's when you see the best outcomes and the best experience for a customer. And so data alone, you might be taking away the wrong insights. You may not know what to do with it. Humans alone, you know, it's not as motivating. It's not as powerful. But when we combine the two, that's where we really see that, you know, something special happen. I'm going to ask about the timeline of it. So I've got a buddy who's one of the big investors in Aura Ring. So he knows about it. We were talking and he says, yeah, he's just, you know, talking, just, just ad living about it. And he said, yeah, honestly, you get the Aura Ring. I think it's, you know, 250, 300 bucks last time I saw you get that. And it tells you what's happening with your sleep. I don't know, at least back when I looked at it, that it goes into a whole lot of depth. I mean, it probably provides some ideas, but it's mainly just monitoring your sleep. You make your adjustments and try to see better results. But he said, man, honestly, wearing the thing for like a month is pretty great. You kind of figure things out. If you don't want to wear it past, then you get a great benefit from wearing for a month. Now here, I see the benefit, like you and I talked about, you know, I've got a wearable device. I wear it all the time. I look at the stats and I look at the trends almost every day. Cause I want to know where I am. Cause I do care about my performance, whether it's a run or it's, you know, writing a show or, or whatnot there. So I see the benefit of using the CGM all the time. If somebody looked at it, cause it does, it costs, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a decent cost to it too. Could you say that, look at the least do it for X amount of time and figure out yourself so that you know what you're responding to. So even if you don't wear it for the rest of your life, give it this much time, get some coaching on it. What would that be? Give me your thoughts. Yeah. For most people, I really recommend doing at least three months. Okay. Um, I think three months is a great amount of time to do your normal routine and then also experiment a little and get in kind of a good groove where you know you're in the right direction that you want to be. If you're super healthy, super knowledgeable, one month might be enough time um, because you might already have most things dialed in and you're just doing a small amount of adjusting. Whereas the other extreme, let's say you are pre-diabetic and overweight and you haven't changed much about your health or lifestyle, you might want to gear more towards six months or longer. Um, and then there's that, you know, initial behavior change, knowledge gathering stage. So that's that one to six months is really learning as much as possible. And then it's about kind of executing that behavior change side of things. And for some people, you don't need to wear the CGM to get that benefit. For some people, you you learned the information and that is motivating enough to know, even without the sensor on, 
I know when I eat that thing at this time of day in this situation, it's not good. So again, you're making that intentional decision, like you said, sometimes it's worth it and that's totally fine, but sometimes it's not worth it. So you get to make those trade-offs. Whereas with other people, you know, we have some customers who have been using it continually since we launched um, over four years ago. Mm. So they have not taken it off pretty much since then. And those are the people where they're like, the data holds me accountable and that's more important to me. And so I, I'm not going without it. So I think it really depends on your personality for that part. Okay. Well, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and just learning those specific trends. I mean, this is, I mean, at the core level, I don't know... You, we're talking non-diabetic for the most part here. I mean, that's where you guys, obviously, if you're diabetic, it's a huge benefit. But I feel like for me, the biggest calling card is my energy levels. I mean, is that the primary for your demographic of people? It's saying if you want to understand and monitor and then uh, mitigate your, you know, energy levels or lack thereof, this, this is really, I don't know if there's a better possibility, opportunity available to us. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I obviously am a huge proponent of the devices and find them to be quite powerful and life-changing. I think energy levels is one of the biggest things people are looking for. Everybody wants to have better energy. Everybody wants to feel better throughout the day. And then I think a lot of people are also really motivated to not get a certain condition. So let's say, you know, your, your mother died of diabetic complications. You might have a very acute, um, you know, awareness and motivation to not end up in the same situation. So there's also a lot of people we see who just really don't want to be taking that same path. Um, but that's, you know, similar prevention, feeling your best, doing everything you can to kind of arm yourself with as many tools in the toolbox to live that kind of life you want to live. Well, you know, folks, you can go, I mean, they call it a truth meter. I like that. You guys, uh, referring yeah. to it as that was uh, from a customer said that, and I was just, like obsessed with that. I phrase, saw yeah. that <laughs> and I thought it was good. Well, let me give folks a couple of resources and friends, everybody, thank you as always for joining us on this journey as we all are seeking to elevate our own experience and improve the way that we show up for others. You can find Kara specifically on Instagram at Kara, K-A-R-A. Collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R-1. Kara Collier, so you can follow her. She's talking about this stuff and her own journey within it. Now, the company is at Nutrisense.io. You can find them on interest. Well, actually, Nutrisense.io is the website, but Nutrisense.io. And I would encourage you to go there even as you look at this because you see a lot of people excited about the accountability, excited about what they're seeing, uh, the results of seeing, gosh, this is how I'm responding. No wonder. And it helps make sense. So, uh, Kara, I mean, I appreciate what you guys are doing and thanks for being here. And I'm just, uh, yeah, it's something that I want to continue learning about it. Cause I don't know if there's anything, I mean, I want to be concerned about the big ticket things and manifestations here today. Selfishly, I just want good energy. So thanks for, for what you're doing and thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Well, folks, if you appreciate the podcast and want to share it with others, rate the show on Spotify, leave a rating review on Apple. You can subscribe to YouTube and see the whole show with Kara and myself and all the other ones. Uh, and then follow us, kevinmiller.co on social media. And if you want to learn how to master your own inner drive, my book, What Drives You, you can find on Amazon in any form. Until next time, stay driven. 